You are listening to the Venture Scale SaaS Operator, the podcast where we interview founders who are actually in the trenches. We talk about the transparent journey of how they build their SaaS companies, how they grow them, and what they would do differently if they would do it all over. Hey folks, with us today, Shai, CEO and co-founder of Retrain.ai. Shai, super happy to have you on. Thank you, Nicholas. Such a great pleasure to be here with you today. Amazing. Let's start with the most important thing. What is Retrain.ai and who is it for? So Retrain.ai is a talent intelligence platform that is intended to help enterprises hire faster, retain longer, and develop their talent more intelligibly. And then if you say enterprise, is this like a thousand people in the company to 10,000, 10,000 to 100? Like how big are your actual customers in terms of like the org size? So our joke is that our platform delivers value where Excel breaks. Excel definitely huh. breaks at a at thousand lines. It probably <laughs> breaks at about 500 lines. So if you're an organization that has more than a few hundred employees or that you are screening more than a few hundred or maybe a couple of thousands of candidates per year, Retrain is right for you. Our core customer basis is uh, large enterprises and we go all the way down to mid-market. Amazing. And then I would love to go back a couple of years to 2006 because Retrain.ai is not your first venture-backed startup. So That's take right. us back to Kaltura and 2006 basically your first startup. Tell us a bit about your origin stories as a venture-backed entrepreneur. Fantastic. So, um, so Contura 2006 is a company that I helped start with three amazing co-founders, Ron, Michal, and Iran. Um, they were actually my um, second startup. I had another startup before that with Ron, who was also a co-founder of Contura. We had a GPS navigation company called Destinator, uh, which went public via RTO. Uh, on Nasdaq, and then we were done with the GPS navigation business and decided to start an enterprise video company called Cultura. And Cultura became the everything video company. It became a video platform that had um, very core technology, just as video was rising. Our vision was that enterprises are going to treat video as a new data type and that existing systems for learning, for training, for communication, for marketing, did not have the facilities to handle video properly. The web was getting along just fine, but if you thought about video, how do you measure it? How do you distribute it? How do you secure it? How do you monetize it? There wasn't really good technology for that. And within Cultura, we developed a set of core technologies to be integrated into all these workflows. So uh, almost two decades later, and uh, that company became an industry leader. It grew from zero to uh, soon enough, close to $200 million is a public company, so you cannot look uh, up at the numbers, um, but a couple hundred million dollars in revenue. Um, and we took it public on Nasdaq three years ago, so that was quite a ride um, within those two decades and really taught me the lessons of how to build a big business and how to focus on, uh, on uh, a very important market trend. Amazing. How big were those two companies in terms of headcount? Um, Destinator was probably about a hundred employees and Cultura at its height is probably close to, um, I think 900 employees, a thousand customers, offices in pretty much all continents except Antarctica. Um, so that became a fairly large business. Yeah. So I guess you made Excel break in Cultura and then 
that was bringing you to the next uh, to your current startup but like tell us about the transition like did you actually found find the product while running your past business or how did you get into retrain.ai yeah that, that's a good question um at control for most of my tenure for the, for the first few years i was the chief revenue officer so i've spent a lot of time building the sales team and and with the customers and many of Cultura's customers were enterprises that were using video for enterprise training and learning. Cultura became famous mostly for its media use cases, helping uh, large organizations like Vodafone run its TV business. But a very big part of Cultura's business was actually not public-facing, consumer-facing video experiences, but rather enterprise use cases, where video was used as part of a toolbox of tools in order to do things within the enterprise both externally and internally. And within those internal use cases, learning and training was a very big part of what Cultura built and sought in education institutions and enterprises. And that always left me pondering while spending a lot of time with the customers of what is a, a, maybe a better definition of the problem they're trying to solve. Because if somebody is willing to spend $200,000 or half a million dollars on video workflows within the enterprise, they must have a pretty big problem. Right? And video is part of a solution of that problem. What is the problem? Uh, and in terms that became clear to me only later, part of that problem was maintaining institutional skill sets. When you talk about enterprise learning and training, when you talk about onboarding, when you talk about bringing new knowledge into the organization, preserving existing knowledge, a different language that you could use to make those same statements is that um, what the organization is trying to do is to build up skills and to maintain skills and to develop skills. And uh, there's a joke that might sound cynical, but we, I, I often mention it, which is, you know, a chicken is an egg's way of making another egg. And in some sense, uh, an employee is an uh, organization's way of managing skills. The only reason that somebody ever hired anybody, right? I don't know if you ever hired people yeah. or you got hired is because the hiring manager wants the employee to do something, right? If you didn't need to do anything, you wouldn't get hired. Yep. The determining factor of whether you can do something or not, or whether you can do it well or not, are the skills that you have. So in some sense, what organizations really want to do, if they could, they wouldn't hire as many people, right? Most organizations would hire less people if they could. They want to hire just the right amount of people that have just the right amount of skills. So that was all kind of thoughts in the background of my mind saying, and video was a very effective tool in doing that because you can create learning and training experiences. You can document knowledge. You can do employee onboarding. You can document products. You could use it for real time. You could use it for non-real time, synchronous and synchronous webinars, et cetera. We've all, since the YouTube era, with then the iPhone era, we've all become very proficient consumers and producers of it. Uh, but the real problem is skills. And then as I started looking into that, one thing that became apparent is that there's a huge skills gap in the market. On one hand, large amounts of people within the population cannot find employment. And there's long-term unemployment with people that are not just unemployed, but unemployable because they don't have the skills to participate in the economy. And on the other hand, despite the, the titles that you might read in the Financial Times or the New York Times, there's no shortage of jobs, there's a shortage of people. And this is true in the US, in the UK, in Germany, in all the developed economies, unemployment is pretty much at an all-time low. For, put COVID aside with a little blip there, but the long-term trend is that skilled labor 
in all of the developed economies is in very short supply. In the US, there are two open jobs for every job seeker. Um, and that is perhaps surprising. And it's only getting worse with the introduction of AI and automations and tools like ChatGPT. Now, if you read the Financial Times or The Economist, you might think, oh, tomorrow morning, everybody's going to be out of a job. 40% of jobs are going to be eliminated. There's going to be mass unemployment. I actually don't think that's the case at all. And in every iteration of the past three industrial revolutions, um, the end result was that there were more jobs created than jobs destroyed. But those jobs that have been created are different jobs and they require different skills. And a good example of that is what happened in the 20th century. Again, statistics from America are easier to track. At the beginning of the 20th century, 47% of the people worked in agriculture in the U.S. Today, about 3% of the people work in agriculture in the U.S. That does not mean that 44% of the people became unemployed, right? It just means that they moved to other jobs. Things like Android development or, or social media specialists or a prompt engineer, if you're talking about the era of AI, new jobs have been created. So amalgamating all of that and kind of compiling all of that, it became apparent to me that there's a big opportunity to create a platform that's going to help organizations deal with that skills gap. And I partnered with two amazing entrepreneurs, Isabel and Afi. Isabel came from this background of uh, HR tech. She was an investor, tech investors, and operator, and started and sold a business in HR tech. And Avi came from uh, many years in the Israeli military as the first chief data officer of the Israeli military and CTO and CIO for Israeli military intelligence, spent his entire career building very large systems. And the three of us partnered together to build the world's largest, most robust, most actionable, most transparent skills framework that is the basis of the capability to help organizations hire faster, retain longer, and develop their talent more intelligently by bringing about what we call an HR co-pilot. It's a bot, it's an AI based on natural language processing that helps organizations look at that entire cycle from pre-hire to retire and allow them to take better decisions around that HR needs based on the language of skills. If you need to hire the right developers and ship fast, then React Squad is for you. A boutique agency that specializes in React and only works with fast growth startups. Visit reactsquad.io to learn more. So you mentioned before with your last company that Vodafone had like the, the video use case. If Vodafone would be a customer today or like if we look at that as just like a random uh, company as an example, how would that look like concretely for them? So because in a That's way, a they, they, I would imagine they still have minimum criteria to hire someone. So would they develop like, I don't know, upskilling project for people that they then would hire? Or like how would that initial stage of make upskilling people to get into the job look like? Yes, that's a great question. I think we could look at three distinct user journeys based on three distinct user types. Um, one is people that have some certain level of skills. And for whatever reasons, they're not working. Either the company shut down or they moved to a different geo or their job got automated for whatever reason, right? And they need a better job. I could be a forklift operator and the factory in my small town close down and I need to do something else. And the default career transition for me, if I did job X, is to look for another job X. I'm a forklift operator. I have those skills. 
I want to find another, I make a decent living, I just need a job. So option number one to help organizations just find people that are the given skills level. But to do that automatically, large companies get tens of thousands of CVs per month. And it takes a tremendous amount of resources to be able to find the good candidates within the large group, to be able to call them, bring them to interviews. That's called the screening problem. Okay, so problem number one is solving the screening problem. Problem number two is that for hard-to-find jobs, uh, you need to also find the sourcing problem because maybe not enough people are applying for that job. So where are the forklift operators and how do you find them? That's journey number one, matching people with certain skills to certain jobs. Journey number two is what I would call upskilling. Somebody uh, knows how to operate mechanical equipment. Maybe they have a forklift operator license, but they understand that if they did the course in operating cranes, maybe they expand their career opportunities. A lot of the knowledge and the tools and the hard skills and the soft skills they already have, but now they need to go and do a two-week crane operator, get the certification, and they would open up career opportunities for them. So upskilling. And that mostly applies to people, either they're learners, they want to learn so they can expand career opportunities, or people within existing companies that could be upskilled to do more things as the company morphs and changes. So that's journey number two. Journey number three is for uh, not just upskilling, but reskilling. If I was a, a worker for a Barclays or an HSBC, and I was a clerk, and they're closing down branches. If Barclays is closing down branches in um, Main Street, London, there's no point for me to go to HSBC because they're also closing down branches. There are no more jobs opening for Main Street banking tethers, right? And maybe I need a completely different job. Maybe I could be a customer service representative in a digital service center, or maybe I could even shift industries and go do something else because I'm very service-oriented, and healthcare is expanding, unlike banking. I'm just making this up. Um, yeah. And maybe I can move to healthcare. So this would be kind of the, the reskilling model. And we named the company Retrain AI because we think that uh, a lot of the focus over the next few years is going to be in that second and third type of journey. It's not just matching people with jobs. A lot of earlier generation systems with pretty baseline keyword searches could do a decent job. Not a great job because traditional non-AI-based keyword searches are, are kind of amiss in the sense of accuracy and nuance. Uh, but when you're looking for those career transitions, this is where a system that's based on skills could really make a difference because there are statistics to show that people entering the workforce today are probably going to have between 12 and 15 different jobs in their career. Um, and if my father was an engineer that uh, used to work for the Israeli government, but hired from the Technion at 25 and worked for the same company for the next 30 years, then that is a very strange rarity yeah. in today's world. That almost is never going to happen again. Where you go, you get recruited for a job, you do pretty much the same job, you get promoted along the way, and maybe you shift roles, but you're doing the same profession for the rest of your career. For people entering the workforce today, the experience is going to be very different. They have to reinvent themselves every few years, and they have to retrain, basically every few years. That's crazy. Even like the difference of like 15 work changes or job changes is really what something you have to, to think about a lot. And, right and now. I think it's, it's even, it's even more mind blowing. If you think about, you know, maybe the nano Western world, if you think about what's going on in Asia right now, what's going on in Africa, this is something 
I think I heard from a PwC recently you know, that over, say, the next five decades in Africa, 500 million people are going to enter the workforce working for companies whose names you don't know, I never heard of. Yep. Doing professions and roles that we don't know. Right. It's a massive I mean, it's transformation. The youngest, the youngest continent in terms of like the people who exactly. live there. So yeah. Exactly. So it's a, it's a massive, it's a massive transformation of the work. Let's switch gears completely and forget what the product does exactly right now and talk more about building a startup, building a company on the organizational level and as a leader, basically. You did this three times already. So for a first-time founder who might just have raised a big seed, call it three, four million, or maybe series A, 10, 15, 20 million, what do you think is the most important skill for a leader to go from having like a small team where you know everybody like in and out basically and then two years later it, there's like 50 100 people in the office so how do you approach something like that as a leader yeah um so if i want to eat my own dog food i would say that as a leader you have to focus on the skills that you need to build don't hire people just because the textbook says that every team needs to have three programmers and a QA person and whatnot. I'm assuming you're building a software business, but you might be building yeah. a hardware business. You might be building a service business. What I'm saying is uh, focus on the skills. Which skills do you need to bring into the organization as you scale? And the yardstick that you should use when determining what those skills are should be customer centricity. If the customer, if your most important customer was sitting next to you as you're doing these interviews, what would that customer say about the person you're about to hire? Is that person going to do work? Again, going back to this idea that skills are the capacity to do work. That person who just got interviewed, you need to decide whether you want to hire them or not. The customer is sitting next to you. Is that person going to make the customer happier or not? That's the question. And if the answer is yes, because it's in the finance department and the customers have been complaining that our billing is all over the place and they need order in our back office, and maybe the next important person you need to hire is a finance person. But statistically speaking, the, probably the next most important person you have to hire is somebody that's a product person or a coder, or again, if it's a hardware, it might be a designer, somebody who's going to deliver the most immediate value to the customer. And I think that that is a golden rule at startup scale. And I've seen too many companies within the companies I invested in or companies that I know or the, the forums I participate in that hire the wrong people because they're hiring based on templates and they get a lot of VC money and there's a lot of pressure from the venture capitals to show that you're scaling really fast. And for many people, scaling really fast means hiring as many people as they can hire, especially where there's a global war on talent. So you find somebody, you don't know exactly what they're going to do but they look pretty good. They call you back to say they have another offer, so you extend your offer. Um, and before you know it, you have too many people like that in the team. Yeah. Um, and you end up managing a large team, which is not focused on delivery customer value. Interesting. I never heard that customer centricity on the hiring example. I, I would like to ask one question, which I know I struggled with in the past, still struggling with it as an operator. Would you... If you had to make the decision, would you 
prefer to hire a bit too early or a bit too late? Meaning hire for the role you know or you guess you might need like three, six months from now? Or do you prefer to have a bit of like the pains of everybody as like 105% on their plate and only then hire someone? Like which route would you go I would, and I would why? I would definitely go with the latter. And I think that, you know, scale is like swimming. You know, you cannot learn it by, by talking about it. You have to get in the water. And um, preparing for scale by pre-hiring typically doesn't do the job, doesn't get the job done. There's an old saying in programming, which is premature optimization is the root of all evil, right? You think that this problem that you need to prepare for scale is this, and you're hiring another customer service representative because you think that all these customers are going to come in, but then you realize that your problem really is that the service is not stable. What you really needed to hire is another DevOps engineer, and that those customers are not coming because the customers you already have are leaving you because the service is not stable, and you end up with two CSMs and only one DevOps, and now you have a big problem because you don't want to fire the guy or the girl because you just hired them, but you don't have the budget to hire the people you really need. So that's Interesting. a typical premature optimization. And yeah. I always um, like to do that. And also definitely if we're talking about you know early generation startups or early stage startups, uh, creating that sense of pressure, I think is a good thing. That's something I learned from one of my earlier bosses. We had a, a graphics guy in the office and every time the boss would pass or the, the days before, even before digital graphics, he would put another thing to be done on the guy's desk. Eventually, you couldn't see the guy from all the things that were piling <laughs> in my head. And I would ask the boss, why do you do that? Like, you're putting things on his desk. He's not going to touch those things for like a month now. And he's like, and the boss says, I found out that the higher the, the, the amount of pages on this desk, the faster he works. You know, it creates a sense of pressure and a sense of urgency on the team. So sometimes if you're 105% capacity, you tend to, to do better and then meetings become shorter and less people in the meeting because they're all busy delivering value for customers. So I think it's part of startup life to create that pressure initially and to do more with less. That's super interesting. And then one more nerdy question, not too nerdy, but like, how do you live that in the day-to-day -day management of things? Meaning like the putting a tiny bit of extra pressure on people's plates while, like, I'm not sure how it's in Israel, but at least in Germany, like, work-life balance, even for a work week and everything's, like, a very hot topic. And if you would say, at least at, to a German employee or employer, yeah, we put 110% on your plate, you would basically get, like, slapped across the face here, um, like, at least in, like, regular corporate uh, Germany. And so how, how do you do that without burning out the employees and, like, without turning like the work culture toxic, so to say. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, in the company that I work for, both at Retrain and Before That Culture, we used a method that was kind of perfected in Silicon Valley called OKRs. And OKRs, and some founders on our podcast today might, might know those, but that stands for Objectives and Key Results. You communicate extremely clearly and extremely transparently from the company level to departmental level to the individual level on a yearly basis and a quarterly basis. What's the objective of each of these organizations, the phone company, the department, the team, the individual? What's the objective? What are we trying to do in the next three months, in the next 12 months? 
And what would be demonstrable key results for that objective? And if you do that transparently, every employee can see your CEO objective for the year. We need to get to this revenue. We need to deliver this project. This is the customer account we want. You put it up front. And the guidance, again, perfected in companies like Google and Dropbox, is to make those key results and objectives quite ambitious. And to create a culture where at the end of the quarter of debrief and at the end of the year debrief, if everybody got 100%, it just means you set the targets too low. It's okay to miss some of the targets some of the times. It's not okay to miss all the targets all the time. So you have to find a very slight balance, but you always put stretch goals and you always communicate them clearly and you always make it transparently. And as a leader, if you're not willing, hey, why would I want my employees to really see what our real sales goals are or company goals because I might fail? Well, that's the culture you want to develop. Um, and um, and Buzz Culture and Retro, we did that. We have like publicly, not public, public, but company public information on a Confluence or on a Jira or, or on a Wiki or I just do a shared Word document, doesn't matter the technique. Everybody can see everybody else's OKRs. And you need to develop a very strong culture of briefing and debriefing. I believe that if you do that, you're going to get better results and the people are not going to get burned out because first they would have a chance through the planning phase to say, hey, you know, this is not realistic. I'm, I'm not going to be able to do this because you know, I'm getting married in the middle of the quarter and I'm going to take two weeks off. And like, you have a chance to talk about because the guidance is to have ambitious goals, but realistic. No point in putting a goal that while planning it, you know, you're not going to get it. Um, one, so there's feedback loop already at the planning phase. And two is the culture of getting things done. And I think that if you do that, then then conversations like, we had employees recently, for example, that wanted to work remote. There was a war situation, some of them were stressed out. That's fine. The conversation, could I go work off an island in Greece? It's not a conversation like I care about where your body is. It's a conversation about OKRs. Are you going to be able to achieve your OKRs if you work on an island in Greece? And if the boss and the employee get convinced, the answer is yes, and go ahead. And I want to take three days off. Fine, take three days off. I don't care about days off. I care about OKRs. And I think that that type of culture creates a tremendous amount of uh, achievement. I love that. And then before we wrap up, is there anything else you could give in terms of advice to the first-time founder who's just at the seed series A stage? So they are in their journey and like it's going well, but again, like it's their first rodeo. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the first is, again, it goes back in my mind to customer centricity and customer value. And I think that, you know, the kind of the trite product market fit, but I think the criteria that I always use for understanding whether you have product market fit is how clearly you can answer both of the following two questions. Question number one is what can my customers do with my product or service that they couldn't do without it? And two, what can my customers do with my product or services they couldn't do with the competition? If you have a clear answer to that question, and if all the employees in your company recite the same answer to those questions, then you're probably on the right track to finding product market fit. Now, of course, you have to build it and you have to sell it and you have to grow it. And, you know, it, but if you're a first-time founder and you're just getting started, you need to be able to answer that. And it's absolutely surprising to me sometimes how you ask these very simple questions and people don't have an answer 
no, you don't understand. Our platform is a platform that does this and that with some JavaScript, and there's a lot of AI in it. Okay, great, but like I got that, the AI part. But what could your customers do with this that they couldn't do without it? Oh, they can optimize their supply chain. Yeah, but you know they could optimize the supply chain with seven other different platforms. Uh, what's the unique selling proposition? What's the product market fit? What's the problem you're solving? For real, not fluff. Don't talk to me about AI and JavaScript. Talk about customer problems. So I would guide every first-time entrepreneur to focus on that question. And if you don't know the answer to that question, don't write a single line of code. Now, of course, in the first few days and weeks, a lot of this is proverbial. You're like, if I had these platforms, what the customers would do with it? You don't have anything. But as you're starting to build the product, you have to make sure that that answer is either valid or you change the answer, but that you have a clear version of that throughout the development cycle. And I think that if you do that, customers are going to come. And if you do that, then investors are going to come and you kind of, you're the drowning man pulling yourself by the hair uh, in the sense of being able to raise money for the first time and attract your first talent for the first time and get the first customers. There's a lot of things to remember. I think that for first-time entrepreneurs, a lot of fears happen in parallel, right? It's the first talent, it's the first money, it's the first customers, it's the first product cycle. There's a lot of new fresh starts there, and it's very challenging, definitely in today's environment. But it's also great fun if you can, if you can build it. Yeah, and that first off, I love that. And then I want to shine light on one thing you said, like as a byline, and your employees need to be able to recite that. Yeah. So is that also how you make sure that everybody in the team is aligned? Yes, absolutely. Um, and and if you can. You should write it on the t-shirts, write it on the tote bags, write it in the office. Um, and I think that that's very different than some values that you want to bring forward. You know, at Facebook, it was famously written on the walls that you need to move fast and break things. So that's an intel. So that's very important. But that doesn't tell you, you know, what the product is, what's unique selling proposition, what's your angle in getting to product market fit. You have to make sure that that customer value proposition is absolutely crystal clear. Because that becomes the yardstick, just to bring us to the beginning of the conversation, that becomes the yardstick for anything you do. The use of proceeds, the priorities within your roadmap, the priorities for your hiring, the targeting of specific market segments, all of that, or all of those things are derivatives of the value propositions that you intend to deliver to your customers. If you can't articulate that clearly across your organization, like what are the chances you can actually build it if you, don't, if you can't even say it? Yeah. I love that. Shai, thanks again for taking the time today. For sure. It's my pleasure. And uh, anybody that wants uh, some more personal advice, I'm very much invited to contact me. Check out retrain.ai, www.retrain.ai, or just shoot me an email. Find me on LinkedIn, uh, Shai David, or shoot me an email, shay.david at retrain.ai, and well, I'd love to talk to you. If you like this episode, then you'll love the SaaS operator a weekly newsletter brought to you by Early Node with actionable insights from SaaS experts in the industry delivered right to your inbox every Tuesday for free. Visit earlynode.com to subscribe.